The first Bible reading for this morning is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sitra, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Today's reading is Ecclesiastes 1.12 through 2.17. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. 
I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and had a harem, as well as the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward of all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in darkness, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise men, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is God's word. Please now, as we come to study your word, would you, would you give us your mind? Would you give us insight by your spirit? Uh, and then give us a, a mind to live it out. Would your word dwell richly within us? so that we understand your world, we live for you in this world, we pray. Amen. 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 Do take a seat. And uh, let me have my welcome then. Um, uh, My name's uh, Matt Fuller. Great to to, uh, see you here. Great to meet you. It would be great to meet you afterwards if I've not done so. And it would be useful if you've let it drop to pick up that, uh, that cheerful reading from Ecclesiastes. Now, well, we started then looking at this uh, book, the book of Ecclesiastes, last week. And it's the quest of the teacher. Uh, Kohelet, uh, sometimes that's literally who he is uh, in Hebrew, but the teacher, the teacher on a spiritual quest. Uh, and it's what you've got to have to bear that in mind uh, when you read this. We're not entirely sure who he is, but he's on a quest spiritually. So you, I wouldn't just pluck a verse out of the book of Ecclesiastes and God's, you know, and say, oh, this is God, what God says. God says, chapter 2, 17, I hated life. Uh, and that's what the Bible says you should do, you should hate life. That would be a very dangerous thing to do with this book. He's on a quest, so only at various points in the book does he reach some sort of conclusion. Lots of what he's doing here is, what's, I don't understand, what is life about? He's searching or seeking 
Uh, so you have to bear that in mind. Now, who is he? We don't know exactly. Uh, the first couple of chapters, he takes on the persona of Solomon, the great king, the really wise, wealthy, uh, most successful in one sense king that Israel had. And he takes on that persona of uh, Solomon. But I don't think he is Solomon because in the rest of the book, chapter three onwards, he denounces the king, says the king is responsible for oppression, which would be odd if that was him. Uh, it'd be slightly schizophrenic uh, at that point. You, you know, he could have solved the oppression. So I don't think it is Solomon, but he takes on that persona of one who has experienced everything. And that's important for what we look at today. But he's on a quest for the meaning of life. And uh, throughout the book, he sort of describes with a relentless logic that if there's no God, all that life is, is meaningless. 38 times, meaningless, meaningless. So we've had today wisdom, well, that's meaningless. Pleasure, that's meaningless. And uh, lots of other things, work, youth, vigor, health, meaningless. Um, Now, we said last week, perhaps a, a good way of translating that or thinking that actually would be vapor. There clearly is meaning in the book. Some things are better than other things. We see that today. Uh, But this word, translated here, meaningless, or vanity of vanities, uh, in the King James Version famously, perhaps vapor is a better way of translating it. Vapor, which is, you can't grasp hold of it. You can't get vapor and store it in your pocket and get it out on another day. Uh, It goes quickly. You can't grasp hold of it, and it doesn't last. And that's what much of life is like. Uh, as the teacher observes it. That's true. So if there's no God, he says, well, there's no right or wrong. You can't say what's right and what's wrong. You just make it up as you go along. If there's no God, there's no point in achieving anything, really, because it won't last very long. You'll hand it on to the next generation and they'll blow it or make a mess of it. If there's no God, life is, well, what's the point? What's the point? He describes this, he goes on to this with relentless logic, and every now and again sort of lifts his eyes and says, but fortunately there is a God, so don't despair. (laughs) And we slightly live for those moments in the book. It would be indeed a very bleak book if we didn't have those uh, moments. And uh, this morning we're thinking largely about pleasure. Pleasure. Uh, Which should be a pleasant thing to do, apart from he says, well, without God, uh, it is meaningless. Uh, but pleasure. Let's think, it. We'll, we'll think about uh, the need for pleasure, uh, the emptiness of pleasure, and then the source, the true source of pleasure. Okay, so the need of pleasure, the emptiness of pleasure, and the source of pleasure. So first of all, the need for pleasure, which is uh, the second half of chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. And essentially, he says, it, pleasure is important because, well, wisdom is meaningless. <laughs> wisdom is meaningless. Wisdom is frustrating, he says. So chapter 1, verse 12, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Oh, what a heavy burden God has laid on men. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. Chasing the wind. What a pointless activity. Running after the wind. Oh, dear. Now, every society that's ever lived uh, has had its thinkers and philosophers. Not many in the population, perhaps, but there's always the sum, the great philosophers in every culture, every society. Two and a half thousand years ago, Aristotle observed the unexamined life is not worth living. That is, you have to find, there has to be some meaning in life. You have to examine life to think, what's the point? Or indeed, how do we improve? How do we get better? 
So, you, you know, you have to do that. Now, what happens when the teacher steps back and does that? He examines life and says, okay, I'm going to examine it. Well, his conclusion is meaningless. Or verse 15, this seeming proverb from the time, what is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. He says, this life is, it's twisted. It's crooked. You look around the world and think, why are they sick? And they health and they healthy. How come they're having lots of children and they can't have any? How come he's lost his job and he's a multimillionaire effortlessly? What life is just not straight. It's not smooth. It's twisted up. It just just doesn't add up. You try and add it up. The second half there, what is lacking cannot be counted. Let's try and add up life. Oh, it's well there's I can't. The the numbers just aren't there. We can't add it up. It doesn't really make sense. And very humbly, verse 16, he says, look, I'm wiser than any of you. (laughs) I I have grown in wisdom more than anyone else, and I can't get it. I'm the wisest man that's ever been, he says, and I can't understand it. So, to be honest, my readers, you've got a fat chance, um, because I'm brighter than all of you. that's, That's his point. So his conclusion, verse 18, well, with much wisdom comes much sorrow, more knowledge, more grief. When you investigate the world... And you read every theory, you study every culture, you analyze every epoch of history. You've done it all and you think, what's the point? And there's no answer. That's quite discouraging. (laughs) At least if you never ask the questions, you think there's probably some meaning out there somewhere. But if you ask all the questions and think, ah, that leaves you flat. With much wisdom, if you know this, well, there's great sorrow. So what do you do? Well, here's the attempt of, uh, of one man, uh, Stephen Jay Gould, who, uh, I mean, he, he died a few years ago, but famous uh, professor at Harvard, uh, paleontologist. Um, he put it this way. We are here because, well, comets struck the earth and wiped out dinosaurs, thereby giving mammals a chance not otherwise available. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, that is, for why we're here, for the meaning of life, but none exists. This explanation, though superficially troubling, if not terrifying, is ultimately liberating and exhilarating. We cannot read the meaning of life passively in the facts of nature. We must construct these answers for ourselves. Now, I've had this extraordinary quote. This, um, this explanation, life has no meaning. The whole of your life is meaningless. Though superficially troubling, just, you know, just it might, might niggle you a little bit if you thought about it, just superficially, actually it's really exciting. Because what? You have to, inv- you have to construct your own meaning, he says. Life has no meaning, says Stephen Jay Gould. I'm really bright, he says. And I can tell you, life has no meaning. So... Don't despair. Create your own. So what do people do? Well, what does the teacher do? I mean, that's what he does. He says, wisdom, well, I did all the thinking in the world and I found life was meaningless. So what did I do next? Chapter 2, verse 1. I thought in my heart, now, ha ha, come, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. That also proved to be meaningless. Or verse 3, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, 
my mind guiding me with wisdom, I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. Do you see what, do you see what he does? He does the, 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 the most common thing that people do today. Occasionally you have conversations with people, and you talk about these things, you know, what's the meaning of life? You know, if you're going to die and there's nothing after that, what, what sense does your life have? On what basis can you say there's any right or wrong? And the most common response is, I don't know, should we go for a drink? Um, oh, that, that's a bit intense, isn't it? Let's go out. Um, oh, those sort of questions, they're quite, oh, I don't really like to think about them. Anyway, let's just go and have a good time. And, um, and that'll all be make up for it. Well, I'll just create some meaning by going to a party. Uh, that's what Stephen Jay Gould says you have to do if you think about what life is. The teacher here in Ecclesiastes says, yeah, I couldn't find any meaning really in life, so I just thought I'd go and have a good time and see how that worked out. It is what people do all the time. No one sits around really and thinks, I'm not sure my life has much meaning. Not many people do that. They just go out and have a great time. And in London, that's particularly true. I read uh, a couple of weeks ago that Londoners spend 30% more than the national average on going out and having a good time. Um, Now, of course, they earn a bit more than the national average. But uh, in a a city, in a busy city, people are chasing their tail. You've got lots of bright, able people. What what are we doing here? Let's have a good time. Let's have a good time. That's what you have to do. So why is there a need for pleasure amongst many? Because if you stop, if you do what Aristotle says, take a step back and say, I need to examine life. Well, that's a little bit daunting. It's a little bit scary, actually. So blow that. Let's just go and have a good time. So let's try that. Let's have a good time. Uh, so the emptiness of pleasure, though. Oh, dear. Uh, but this is his attempt to have a good time in uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And sadly, it doesn't quite work out how he desires or expects. Although he tells you, chapter 2, verse 1, what's going to happen. I thought in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find what's good. But that also proved to be meaningless. So it's not, there's no great sense of anticipation here. You kind of know where he's going. Uh, it's not going to work out brilliantly. Now, what does he do? Well, uh, verse 2, he tries a couple of things, laughter and pleasure. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? Now, it doesn't quite come out. But what you've got there is lowbrow, highbrow. So laughter, in the Hebrew, has more of a sense of this is a frivolous night out down the pub with a smutty joke and a good laugh. Uh, Pleasure is off you go to the theatre, the art galleries, uh, the opera. So he's really saying, look, I've tried it all. I got smashed at the Red Lion. I went and enlightened myself at the Royal Academy. I've tried the spectrum, okay? I've, I've, I've tried the spectrum here of all sorts of pleasures. It doesn't work out too well. Now, what does he try? Uh, well, verse 3, he tries liquid pleasure. Liquid pleasure. I tried cheering myself with wine. But my mind was still guiding me with wisdom, so... This sense of, look, I tried going out and getting smashed, but I'd wake up every morning and think, well, that, was that worth it? Not, not a lot achieved there. Liquid pleasure. Uh, verses 4 to 6, he tries creative pleasure. Verse 4, I undertook great projects, but not sort of a public service. It's not as if he's building the M1 or constructing something useful. They are, verse 4, for myself. I built houses for myself and vineyards. I mean, this is quite a man. It's not just I tried gardening and had a nice little cabbage patch with a few carrots. It's I grew a vineyard and now I've got my own wine label. 
And uh, look, I, I built a, a sort of gardens that are a rival to Kew. And uh, people wander through my public gardens and go, ooh and ah, and look at your orchids. And gosh, I didn't know you could grow them in the UK, particularly when it rains like today. The, um, no, the, this is impressive, what he does. Uh, so he tries uh, creative pleasure. Verses 7 and 8, there's material pleasure. So I bought male and female slaves. I had other slaves born in my house. Look, I mean, he owns so much. Verse 8. I acquired, I amassed silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He even has a choir. It's not enough for him to buy the most expensive Bose stereo music system. He goes and buys the Royal Opera House and its ensemble and has them perform in his garden. He owns everything. Look, he amasses enormous amounts of wealth, great material pleasure. And there's sexual pleasure as well. So uh, still in verse 8, he acquired a, a, a harem. Now that is a very polite word, or a very polite translation. I mean, we could say, and I had lots of whores, but even that is very polite for what he's saying. Uh, sexually, he explored everything. He's tried it all. Liquid pleasure, creative pleasure, material pleasure, sexual pleasure. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing. No restraint, no self-denial. He tried wine, women, and song. And verse 11, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. I caught up with a friend this week, uh, we hadn't seen one another for a while, and uh, we got chatting and I asked about his brother, who um, was quite a character, always a character, and uh, his brother was uh, very successful in business, um, had a very glamorous uh, uh, girlfriend, bought himself a very lovely apartment, all was well uh, in a worldly sense. But um, then he got into gambling and uh, small, small online gambling, small, small, owed, you know, four figures, five figures, six figures, a lot of money. And I asked how his brother was, he said, oh, he's blown the lot. He, lo- he lost his job, he sold his flat, lost his girlfriend, he started from scratch again. I said, gosh, what, you know, you chatted much to him about it? Why? He just said he was bored. He was just bored. But he had, you know, he had everything on paper. Yeah, yeah. On paper, he had it all. He was just bored. I don't know if um, uh, uh, the musician Moby means anything to you. If you remember him at all. He may have passed you by. In 1999, he released his album Play. And it completely flopped, did nothing, absolutely nothing. So the record company said, okay, well, that was a fat lot of good, wasn't it? Let's try and sell one or two of these songs to uh, advertisers. So his songs started appearing as the backdrop to various car adverts and things like that. And people went, oh, that's all, I like that. What's that song? Uh, Until all of a sudden, the album just took off, multi-million pound selling. Uh, And in his own words, all of a sudden, this bald middle-aged no-hoper was the most famous musician on the planet for a few years. But uh, here's his comment on what he did. He says, after 10 million album sales, the world isn't just your oyster. It's an oyster that leaps out of its shell and jumps down your throat. For a while, I got very caught up in the trappings of success. I only wanted to hang out with rock stars. I lived a life of total dissipation for 10 years before finally realizing that contentment would not be found in sex, drugs, and success. I needed intimacy and love. 
and I wasn't going to find it in an orgy. Ten years. That's a lot of his life. He's wasted ten years. And the teacher could have told him this. That it doesn't matter how much you spend. It doesn't matter how, who you hang out with. It doesn't matter how, what pleasures you can explore. They'll not satisfy you. They will not. But you see, it's, um, it's interesting that the, these guys, I mean, the, the teacher here, gee, he can do something that none of us probably are able to do. The way he describes it, he is so wealthy, so successful, he can achieve everything. And he says, look, I have, I have gone through the pleasure barrier. Most of you think that if you could just have a little bit more, a little bit more, you'd be content. Let me tell you, I've done it all, and it's empty. And that's what Moby's saying. Look, I've done it all. Every pleasure that money could buy, and lots which are illegal, but I could still buy, I bought them all, and I ended up with loneliness. It's very striking. See, these guys can teach us something that most of us are not going to be able to discover on our own, that you can buy everything, explore every pleasure, And it still won't do. It will not satisfy you. But something that doesn't quite compute for us in that. And of course, for not all, but much of advertising plays on this fact. Not happy? Well, buy our jumper and all of a sudden you'll be happy. Not content? Buy our perfume, buy our cars, buy our cigarettes, and all of a sudden your lifestyle will improve no end. None of them work? Just try something else. Buy something else. Explore something else. Attempt something else. And then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll be happy. Then you'll be content. And uh, Moby, the teacher, would say to us, I don't believe that. I've done a lot. There's no contentment there. Or there's the law of diminishing returns. You find something that's pleasurable and enjoyable, but it doesn't, after a while, it tires and becomes boring. So you just need a bit more, and a bit more, and a bit more. Until it's like a drug, but then, well, it still tires. You still tire of it. Last month, um, uh, do you remember David Yelland? He was editor of The Sun. He brought out a biography, uh, his biography last month. It's an interesting read. Uh, he was made the editor of The Sun, age 35. So phenomenally young. Uh, and uh, you know, at the t- he thought that was the most marvellous thing. He was, he's a self-confessed political geek, Anorak, and there he was, 35. All of a sudden, he's invited to parties with Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and, uh, and Robin Cook and Gerald Kaufman, these sort of childhood heroes or uh, heroes he'd had. Or every political party he wants to go to, every social party he can get to. And, of course, everyone is so nice to him, and, and, and he's fated everywhere he goes because he's the editor of The Sun, and he can destroy you or raise you up. Um, so everything... All of a sudden, he has everything, but he drinks. He drinks. He describes how writing, he was on, on a Concorde flight one day, and he just stared and stared as he, as he guzzled through uh, the alcohol. And he wrote on a napkin, who am I? What am I doing? He had a wife. He had a son. But he just, what am I doing here? And so he started to drink. It was the only thing he found contentment in. And he started drinking and drinking and drinking. And he says, I'd wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning, and the first thing I'd do was open a bottle of wine. I'd get through four before lunchtime. He said, it was amazing. I'd, uh, I'd wake up and hear the news. I'd listen to the Today program on Radio 4, and they'd be writing something that I'd written. I had no recollection of writing it. Um, who am I? What am I doing? More and more and more and more of the alcohol, but it just didn't do it. 
It could numb him for a while, but it certainly didn't satisfy him. And many would envy him. Many envied the teacher, verse 9. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Greatly emptied. But all these characters, they, again, they've done something that we're unlikely to do. They've taken pleasure and they've drunk the cup to the bottom and said, you know what, when you get to the bottom, there's nothing. There is nothing. Don't be fooled. Don't think pleasure can ever satisfy completely. It can't. We've done it the lot And it's empty. And so he concludes, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. It's a conclusion to the book of this so far. So I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom. I tried wisdom, didn't like that very much. And also madness and folly, the folly of just pursuing a hedonistic life of pleasure. I tried that, didn't like that very much. Verse 12, what more can the king's successor do? You have a go. I can tell you what, I've done it all. There's nothing more, there's nothing you can do that I haven't tried. So what's his conclusion? Well, verse 13, wisdom is better than folly. It is better to be Stephen Jay Gould than Moby. It is better to be an academic who thinks and is respected than have your life in the gutter. Yeah, it is. It is better to do that. But, verse 14, second half, I came to realize, what does it matter really? The same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, well, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. You can be a Nobel-winning academic and, have your, and be very, very famous, or you can be the drunkard at the Red Lion, but you know what? When you die, you die, and it's just the same. And so he concludes, verse 17, I hated life. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Now, <laughs> that is not all the Bible has to say, <laughs> which is a great relief. But do you see what he's doing? The teacher is saying, this is life without God. You can numb yourself for a while. You can inebriate yourself on pleasure, but it wears off, and you're left thinking, who am I? What am I doing? Let's jump ahead. Look down to uh, chapter 2 and verse 24 to 26. Here's the first time you get one of these sort of breath of fresh airs, or, or the curtains are thrown back, the sunlight bursts in. It's one of the points where the teacher says, now look, we've thought about life without God. Phew, there is a God. So chapter 2, verse 24, here's the source, the genuine source of pleasure. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? There is a God, and you can therefore find pleasure. If you... um, if you went to dinner anywhere in December or January time, uh, any restaurant, the, most of them had these little street smart things. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, you, you may not have noticed, and they just put some money on the bill. What it was that uh, every, every cover had a pound put on it to uh, give away to homelessness. So it's quite a good thing. But it has a little uh, insert from uh, Stephen Fry inside. He writes this, good wine, good wine, sorry, uh, good food, good wine, and good company enrich our lives beyond measure. Most of us don't say grace or thank God these days. We don't know who to thank for the inestimable pleasures of the table. And so this gift of a pound, it lets us do a graceful thing, a simple thing, a kind thing. I thought it was quite interesting when I picked that up at Christmas time. Uh, Good food, good wine, good company, they're great. And I want to say thank you to someone, says Stephen Fry. I want to enjoy it. But there's no one to give, I don't know who to. 
So let me give a pound to charity. That's, that's a nice thing. That'll inject some meaning into the meal I've just eaten. Well, that's okay. But see, the writer here is saying, if there's no God, why do we delight in music, for example? Why is it that a symphony can make your heart ache? It is so beautiful. Or maybe not for you. A song can make you want to jump up and dance. Why is that? See, if there's no God, all that's going on when your heart aches or your feet want to dance, all that's going on is your, your molecules are fizzing at that moment in time because they've been programmed to do it. You're just, you're, you're, your chemistry is just saying, oh, okay, I, I, I respond to this. You're not really enjoying it. You've just been programmed to. And one man likes the Beatles and another man likes Beethoven. And the only reason is one's a bottle of Coke and one's a bottle of lemonade and we fizz in slightly different ways. But we're just chemicals that fizz and that's all we are. There's no real pleasure. There's no real enjoyment in it. If you enjoy a film, it's just because you're wired to. If you enjoy a meal, it's just because certain chemicals are hitting the hypothalamus and saying, oh, that was satisfying and I don't need to eat any more today. If you fall in love, you have, you've done no such thing. You're just two magnets that have just come together. You had no choice. It's not real. The feelings you feel are nonsense. They are lies. It's just you're programmed to do it. You have no choice if there's no God, if you're just a bunch of chemicals. So verse 25, he says, Without him, without God, who can eat and find enjoyment? So you tuck into your lunch and think, this is nice. Don't. You can't do that. All that's happening is your, your, your chemicals are programming one another. You meet your dearest friend. Oh, it's so nice to see you. No, it isn't. That's a lie. That feeling is a lie. All that's happening is your chemicals are saying there's something good here. But it's just because you're programmed to like it that way. You have no choice to enjoy that person, but to enjoy that person's company. Now, that is pretty grim, isn't it? I love you. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're just genetically programmed to find me attractive. There is no emotion in you, really. Hmm, it isn't quite, not quite such rom-com material, is it, that one? So if there's no God, who can give thanks? But if we recognize that these are gifts of him, then all of a sudden, if we can recognize that he injects meaning into our lives, then these are real. And... These feelings we feel, these tastes we taste, the smells we smell, the pleasures we have, they are hints of him. C.S. Lewis, uh, famously, I think, uh, puts it this way. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them was longing. These things are good images of what we really desire, but if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself, they're only the scent of a flower we've not found, the echo of a tune we've not heard, and news from a country we've never visited. Do you see what he's saying? When you hear a symphony and are delighted by it, when you go into a patisserie and the smell hits your nose and you think, whoa, give it, give it, give it all to me. When you, when you see someone you love and you're, you're overwhelmed with that, those are hints, echoes. 
shadows of the real pleasure that is to be found in Jesus Christ. Now he says, look, if you put all your weight on them, well, you'll be like the teacher here. They'll disappoint you. They'll, they'll let you down. They're not meant to hold that sort of pleasure. If you recognize their gifts from him, pointing to him as the giver, you can enjoy them. You can really enjoy them then. They're good things from him. But think of it this way. Salt, another way of putting it, salt is a good thing. If you add it to a meal, it adds flavor. Uh, The blandest soup can be revitalized with a little bit of salt. It's a good thing. You have a meal. What's for dinner today, love? Salt. Really? That's it? Yes, just salt. Okay. Are you tucking to salt? That's disgusting. That is disgusting. That will not sustain you. It'll make you sick after a while if you just eat salt. And that's what the teacher's saying. If you put all, all your weight on these sort of worldly, earthly pleasures, they're disgusting. If you have them to flavor life, and God is the meal, that's a dreadful way of putting it, but they're good. You can enjoy them. They add flavor. But don't put all of your weight upon them. Earthly pleasures are not meant to be the ultimate source of satisfaction. They let us down. So the teacher says, thank goodness there's someone else. You can find your satisfaction in him. And so in John 4, we meet the woman at the well. And she's just gone to get some water that day. But Jesus says to her, look, you've gone through all sorts of relationships. You've gone through five marriages seeking satisfaction. You're with another man now. You've gone through all of these. But... Drink from me. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, he says, pointing to the well. You drink from that, you'll be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And he's saying, you can pursue all sorts of pleasures. You can drink water. You can have food. You can have wine. And you'll want to eat again. The best meal you've had in your life. Do you remember it? the restaurant you went to, the very best meal you've ever had. Well, you need another one. Jesus says, if you want real satisfaction, it's found in me. You you seek it in love? Well, you've had five marriages. You're with another man now. You'll find it in me. I'm the source of satisfaction. And with me at the center, well, you can enjoy the rest of life. Yeah, you can do that. But satisfaction is in me. If you've never understood that, well, for, you need to investigate Jesus Christ and come to him. For those of us who are Christians, you might think, well, yes, I've, I've heard that. I wouldn't say my life is absolutely satisfied. I'm not sure I always feel that there's a well of water springing up within me. I don't feel like an Evian source every day of my life. And I think Jesus' answer is, or response would be, is you, you still drink in the wrong place. Drink from me. Actually, if, if, if you're a Christian and maybe but don't know anything of that satisfaction, it's because you're still investing too much in the pleasures of this world. You expect too much from them. Drink from me, and then they'll be in their right place. So the source of pleasure, that's Jesus Christ. And once we have that in place, well, that transforms this life. That does inject real pleasure. You know who to give thanks to. You can enjoy the pleasures of life, rightly, when you rest upon him. You know the, uh, the wonderful film, um, 
Chariots of Fire, wonderful film. And uh, the hero, or one of uh, the protagonists in it, Eric Little, there's a point in which uh, he says to uh, his sister Jenny, who says you should go to the mission field, he says, I will do, but Jenny, God has made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And there's a man who's got this. Chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, I get this. I can really enjoy my running, because I know his pleasure when I run. And so he does that really odd thing uh, about halfway through the race, and did it in all of his races. You know, he's running along and all of a sudden throws his head back. And um, I always thought that was to help him breathe in some way, which is a bit stupid, really. I mean, how does that help? And then I read an interview with uh, 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 his sister. He said, when he does that, he was worshipping. He threw his head back to say, Lord, I'm doing this for you. And enjoying his God and feeling his pleasure. So the teacher would say to us, the pleasures of this life, you invest too much in them, you can't find meaning in them. You can't find satisfaction in them. That is found in Jesus Christ. Know him and the rest falls into place. You can enjoy them much more. When you find your satisfaction in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you in your wisdom. You know what we need. You know precisely what we need. And so you put this book in the Bible to prevent us from doing the the foolish thing of seeking meaning for life just in the pleasures of this world. For a while they'll satisfy, for a while they can uh, numb us. But thank you that uh, the teacher is very clear, we need more. We're made for more. We're made for you. And so, Father, would we hear from one who has experienced so much more pleasure than us and recognize that it is only in Jesus Christ that satisfaction can be found. Amen.